This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Your uncle company would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of this land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders, past and present, and to the next generation who we hope to create a different future for. The best career advice that you are not getting is to invest. Hello and welcome to Your In Good Company, an investing podcast striving to disrupt the norms in the finance industry. I'm Maddie and as always, I'm in some very good company with my co-host Sophie. Hello Maddie. Very exciting episode today because today is the final episode of season two. Today we are humbled to welcome to the show someone who really needs no introduction at all, but alas I will give her one anyway. Australia's 38th Minister for Foreign Affairs and first female Deputy Leader of the Federal Liberal Party, the Honourable Julie Bishop. Safe to say Julie has not slowed down since her time in Parliament. These days, Julie is the Chancellor of ANU, Chair of the Telethon Kids Institute, Member of the International Advisory Board of the Human Vaccines Project and Patron of Shooting Stars, an education program for young Aboriginal girls, just to name a few. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for joining us on Your In Good Company. Delighted to join you both, Sophie and Maddie. Great to be with you. So, Julia, we always start the episode in the same way so people can get to know you a little better with some intro questions. The first is, what's the best thing that's happened to you this week? Well, given that it's very early in the week, I guess I would say that I began my week with a good exercise routine. And since COVID restrictions, I've got right into yoga. So, Monday morning, 6am yoga class down at Cottesloe, which was beautiful. And then today, I went for a run but it started raining. Both experiences were (laughs) exhilarating. A great way to start the week. Sounds divine. And if you could be a stock or company, who would you be and why? (laughs) I'd want to be L'Oreal. It's an international international company. It's right into sustainability and let's face it, looking good has never gone out of style. Love it. So, Julie, you started out your career as a lawyer and were studying at Harvard doing your MBA when, fortunately for all of us, you realised that you wanted to go into politics. What was the inspiration for this change? I was actually on a sabbatical. I did the advanced management course at Harvard Business School and I was planning on perhaps leading law going into corporate life. But during my time there, in one of the classes later in um, my program, one of the lecturers asked if any of us had thought about actually going into public office, giving back to your country rather than going into corporate life. And suddenly it seemed to make sense to me. It was my eureka moment. My mother had been a local councillor. There was a lot of public service in my family. But suddenly my legal career seemed to be at an end and I thought, that's what I'll do. I'll go into federal politics because I was fascinated by the national debates on national issues. I was also deeply interested and passionate about Australia's place in the world and how we could make a difference for the life of our times. 
so politics it was. Now, you have to be very careful what you wish for because within two years of returning from Boston, I was elected as the federal member for Curtin, a seat here in Western Australia. Incredible career. Did I also read correctly that you made partner in your late 20s at a law firm? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Well, I was actually a partner at 25 in Adelaide. It was a small firm. And then I came to Perth and I joined Kate Newt's, which was a much bigger, became a national law firm, and I became a partner at about age 28. Maddie and I are both 25 now and I feel like I'm at the very (laughs) beginning of my career and I can't can't imagine being a partner and leading people. We're a bit behind. (laughs) Well, it's all a question of chance and circumstance and grabbing hold of opportunities as they present themselves. Oh, of course. Now, we read that as Foreign Minister, on top of your already, I can imagine, very busy schedule, you made a point of meeting every female leader, whether it be in the government or the private sector, in every country that you visited, which I can assume is quite a few. Why was this important to you? Women leaders still remain in the minority in virtually every country I visited, and I probably visited well over 100, 110, 120 countries during my five years as Prime Minister. But I thought it was important to get their perspectives, whether it be in business or not-for-profits or most certainly in politics. I wanted to get their perspectives, and often I found they had a different view of the world than the brief that had been presented to me, perhaps it had been prepared by men, or the multiple numbers of male leaders that I met when I was in a country. So I would ask our embassy or diplomatic post to organise a lunch or a dinner with a group of leading women from that country. And I found that I learned so much about social issues, about that country's perspectives, but I don't know that I would have gleaned had it been an all-male meeting plus me. Of course, combination meetings of male and female voices was obviously very useful, but I did want to hear from the female leaders. And it was also important to get that sense of sisterhood around the world and nurture that, and I found it to be most valuable. So you've obviously met some pretty incredible women in your time. Are there any moments that stand out to you as being particularly memorable? Oh, yes. I remember a meeting in September of 2016 at the United Nations in New York. And all of the foreign ministers from, virtually all the foreign ministers from about 200 countries were in New York at that time. And 25 of the foreign ministers were female out of that number. And we came together for a dinner one evening and it was one of the most enjoyable nights I've ever had in my 20 years in politics. It was just amazing. So 25 women holding the same position as I did in their particular country and discussing the geostrategic, global, political issues of the day. It was a fascinating night. Much champagne was drunk and many friendships, many friendships formed. I remember it with great fondness. I can imagine that you'd all have such fascinating perspectives as well on some of, you know, the same issues. It would be amazing. Exactly. There was there were so many common issues. It didn't matter what country you came from or your background or life experience. There were so many issues in the struggle for gender equality and gender equity. It was interesting, yeah. You said before that you'd want to have dinner with Princess Diana. When I answered that question, when Maddie asked me, I said the Obamas. So I wanted to know, how was it meeting the Obamas? Uh, That was wonderful. I met President Obama on a number of occasions during 
his time as the leader of the United States. And then on a couple of occasions, I was delighted to meet Michelle Obama. They hosted functions and events, and they were both exceedingly tall people. I do remember uh, a number of photographs that I had taken with them where I looked like a very tiny person <laughs> in between these two very elegant, tall people. Uh, she was delightful and um, very easy, very relaxed, uh, very much like her husband, Barack Obama, was uh, very laid back, very cool. He was one of the coolest people I've ever met in the sense that he was very comfortable with himself. He was self-confident and charming, as was she. I've heard you tell a story about how Obama runs down the stairs of the aeroplane without holding on to the handrail, and that image is just imprinted in my mind. He looks so cool. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever Googled it, but you can actually see um, images of Barack Obama running down the steps of Air Force One and he doesn't hold the sides or he doesn't hold the handrail. He just has his hands in front of him, this very graceful, loping style. And I noted it on a number of occasions when I saw him descend the stairs from a, a plane or elsewhere. And it's just a, such an easy, graceful, self-confident image. It really stuck in my mind. But there are all sorts of aspects of different leaders that <laughs> I remember with some fondness and some were a bit disturbing, but it was, a, it was a great privilege to represent Australia on the world stage, but also to observe so many different leaders um, at close range and learn a lot about leadership just from the observations I made during that time. So coming back to Australia now then, in 2013 you were elected by your party room as deputy leader, which meant that when your party came into government you automatically became a member of cabinet, which at the time there were actually no other females appointed. You've mentioned in an interview before that you've noticed the behaviour of cabinet is quite different when you're the only female versus when there are lots of females. Can you explain what you mean by this? I think it's an experience that many women have had when they are in a room uh, of all men, or they've been at a meeting where the vast majority are males. I, I call it gender deafness. I just dubbed the term. But it seemed that uh, when I spoke and put forward an idea in a group of men, they would nod and then move on. It was as if they didn't hear my contribution, yet a couple of people further around the table would say precisely the same thing, raise the same point, and there would be nodding or, yes, I agree, yeah, what a good idea, etc. And you think, didn't I just say that? Why have they not heard me? And I thought maybe it's me, maybe it's my standing in the cabinet, I don't know. But I raised it with a few women who said, that happens to me all the time. Then I raised it in a conference of female leaders that was hosted in Hong Kong. And the women in the room just erupted with laughter when I said it. And I asked the room of several hundred women, how many have experienced this? And virtually all of them put up their hand. And then since that time, having adopted the phrase gender deafness, it's come back to me time and time again where women say, I know exactly what you mean. It's a strange phenomenon. It's as if they don't hear you. But when a man puts forward your idea, appropriates your idea, it registers for some reason. Now, when there were more women in cabinet, we would reinforce each other and say, did anyone hear what Julie just said? And then bring people's attention to it and we got over it that way. But I think having a mix of views in decision-making forums, whether it be the United Nations Security Council, the National Cabinet or a boardroom, having a mix of views, life experience, perspectives, 
I mean, diversity in a decision-making forum is so important. You get better discussions, better dialogue, better outcomes. Now, it doesn't have to just be gender diversity, but that's the most obvious, um, given that over 50% of the Australian population is female. One of my favourite segments ever on Australian TV was in Misrepresented when they asked each leader, each female leader, about gender deafness and they put it all together and it was like you were all reading from a script and everyone was able to tell the exact same story. It was mind-blowing and, yeah, it was hilarious and sad at the same time. (laughs) It, It was very clever editing because we were all obviously interviewed separately. In fact, my interview was quite early on. It was last January and some of the interviews were later and Annabelle Crabb or the team didn't tell each uh, person being interviewed the questions that others were asked and so likewise I saw that for the first time when the show was um, released and was amazed maybe not not so surprised but I was delighted to hear that we'd all had the same experience from whatever political party or side of politics or wherever we were on the political spectrum. So it wasn't just an experience that I had. It was something that many women had experienced. But we all have our own ways of coping with it. And of course, things will change when you get a critical number of women and women's voices in a room, then they will be heard. Yeah, 100%. Even when I've spoken to girlfriends about that, that like everyone has their own perspective. It doesn't even have to be in politics. It can be in business. It can be in personal relationships. It's like almost in every aspect in life. I guess it's one of those things that we just need to work towards changing and that will happen when we do, you know, start working towards greater targets or quotas of women in every room, no matter what the circumstance. Yes, I think that there is a significant momentum underway now to ensure that women's voices are heard. It doesn't have to be equal numbers. You just have to have a critical mass of women. But likewise, there are you know, plenty of um, female-dominated workplaces, and the question is, should we be striving to get more men into those workplaces, You know, whether it be primary school teaching or aged care or nursing or whatever? Uh, are we better off with greater diversity? And I would say absolutely. Now, kind of sticking with this female perspective a little bit, we want to jump into, you know, women in politics are often criticised for their fashion choices. Or, or lack thereof. Yeah. Or lack thereof. <laughs> I mean, the media constantly is focusing on, you know, what you're wearing and not actually the work you do. And I think that could be one of the most infuriating things. But we feel like that you really took it in your stride and you even used the hashtag fashion diplomacy to promote Australian fashion on the overseas stage. Why was this important to you? I wanted to be authentic. I've always been interested in fashion. As soon as I could get a subscription for Vogue to be home-delivered, I got (laughs) one. My mother was very interested in fashion. I used to pour over fashion magazines. It was just something I was passionate about and had an interest in fashion throughout my life. And as a young lawyer, I liked to dress professionally. I liked beautiful clothes and when I could afford them to buy them I would I was also pretty good at you know stealing clothes from my sister's wardrobe and friends <laughs> so it, it was I wanted to be well presented and feel comfortable in what I was wearing yeah in politics there was an inordinate amount of um, media focus on what you wore how you cut your hair or wore your hair and it's always going to be that way while ever women in leadership positions uh, is a novelty it will wear off over time. But I continued my deep interest in fashion and wearing clothes that I loved 
because that's who I am and I didn't want to change and, and be something that others expected me to be or conform to a stereotype that just wasn't me. So I wore the clothes that I liked and I was interested in fashion. But when I became the foreign minister and the first woman to hold that role, foreign ministers are always promoting Australian trade, goods and services overseas. And I thought that the Australian fashion industry is such a significant part of our export economy, yet it gets very little serious attention. So if a female foreign minister can't bring attention to it, who can? So I started to promote Australian designers and stylists and photographers overseas and there were times when our embassy or our high commission would host a fashion parade of Australian fashion, Australian wool, Australian cotton, Australian diamonds and pearls and we would get so much of the fashion media from that country to cover an Australian um, fashion parade that I dubbed the tag fashion diplomacy because we were using our standing as an embassy or our diplomatic standing or me as foreign minister to promote an Australian export. Now, if it were mining resources, oil, gas, iron, iron ore or nickel or gold, nobody would have raised an eyebrow. They would have said, well, that's what a foreign minister is meant to do. Well, I thought that as the fashion industry employs directly about, oh, I don't know, um, 200,000 people, indirectly probably about 600,000 people, and is a massive export earner. I think it's valued at something like $20 billion. That's a significant part of the Australian economy. So I was proud to promote Australian fashion. And when uh, I was dubbed the um, Minister for Fashion, I took it as a um, badge of honour. Uh, I know people were trying to use it as a, a way to trivialise what I was doing. But I thought that reflected more on them, that you can't be interested in fashion and hold down a serious job at the same time. What nonsense. So, Julie, when you resigned as foreign minister, you wore a pair of red shoes, which became so iconic that they ended up in the Australian Museum of Democracy. And it became one of the most popular exhibitions that they'd ever had. It was this outfit that was then replicated into your very own Barbie doll, honouring you as a 2021 Australian role model for being a true trailblazer in politics, which I must say was a very refreshing change from some of the Barbies that we're used to seeing. But we have to ask, how does it feel to have your very own Barbie and where can we get one? Well, interestingly, I had always loved Barbie dolls from a very young age. I think my mother gave me my first Barbie doll when I was very young and it was a replica of Jackie Kennedy, you know, the first lady yeah. of the United States back in those days with a beehive hair and a pillbox hat and gloves and a, and a Chanel sort of jacket. So I had a Barbie doll and I still have her. She's one of my favorite, favorite possessions. Barbie has been the subject of a lot of criticism over the years, but then um, a few decades ago they morphed into a much more powerful image and Barbie then became you know, a surgeon or a veterinarian or an astronaut. In fact, they put out Barbies that were representing careers that many women hadn't even embraced at that time. Then they have this fantastic Dare to Dream program and uh, that's to inspire young women to dream about wonderful careers, you know, be the woman you want to be. And they honoured me with 
making a Barbie in my image. And she's a, a little foreign minister Barbie with a suitcase and a little Australian passport and wearing the red heels and the blue suit that I wore on the day I resigned. And it's a one only. It can't be replicated. They're not. They're not for sale. It's a. It's a, a symbol. And she's she's on a stand in my living room and looking rather wonderful. So it was just a recognition of the contribution that I've made to the empowerment of women and girls, particularly as foreign minister, because I focused a great deal of my time and energy on trying to support women, particularly in uh, developing countries and in our part of the world, in the Southwest Pacific and the Indian Ocean, Asia Pacific region, empowering women and girls through a variety of programs and really putting an emphasis on that because I truly believe that no nation can reach its potential unless and until it fully engages with and connects with the ideas and talents and skills and energy of the 50% of its population that's female. We definitely do agree with that. I think one of the perspectives we usually have um, as an investing podcast is we look at the companies behind, you know, whatever's happening in the world. And in this case with Barbie, it's Mattel. And it's one of those things that they kind of moved into that space of trying to really recreate their, their brand. And we often look at that with companies. But one of the things we were thinking is that they should really make a Barbie where you're wearing that the pink frock for the ovarian cancer campaign because we absolutely loved that one. <laughs> I've been involved as an ambassador for ovarian cancer research for some years now and both my sisters had an ovarian cancer scare when they were teenagers or in their early 20s. It, they turned out to be benign but nevertheless I was very conscious of the possibility of the risk and I was asked to support raising money and raising awareness for ovarian cancer. And a fashion designer in Adelaide came up with this idea of designing a beautiful bright pink frock and then I'd wear it in uh, a photo shoot and then he would auction the dress off and it's because his young cousin uh, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer when she was about 20 and she died when she was 30 so all her you know, 20s she was struggling with ovarian cancer and so it's such a touching story mm. she died in 2019 I think uh, no 2020 and it's such a, such a touching story that we've continued with Jamie Sortino making a fabulous dress, me wearing it in the most unlikely situation. The last one was on a mine site, on a lithium mine site, because the theme of ovarian cancer's um, program this year was to normalise conversations about ovarian cancer, e even in your workplace. And so the photographer, Russell James, and I were thinking, now, what's the most unlikely place that you'd be talking about ovarian cancer? <laughs> is it? How about a mine site? And the women in uh, Mineral Resources, uh, this is a lithium mine up near Kalgoorlie, the women on the mine site were just absolutely delighted to take part and support what we were doing for um, raising awareness and funds for ovarian cancer research because there's no early detection test for ovarian cancer. And so most women who are diagnosed are diagnosed late in the progression of the illness and so the life expectancy is um, nowhere near as um, positive as that for other cancers. Well, maybe they can sell some Barbies with the pink dresses for charity <laughs> and we can help raise more money that way. Well, that's a thought. I might have to speak to Mattel about that one. <laughs> we are going to take a quick break for our sponsors, but we will be right back to chat more with Julie. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So in your current role, you're the Chancellor of uh, ANU. And in your experience, you know, with this podcast, we often talk about financial literacy. So we wanted to ask, why do you think, you know, women in Australia are often or and around the world are often less financially literate than their male counterparts? And how do we go about changing this? I think that is changing, but it is a hangover of the old responsibilities of past eras of single income households, uh, the men had the responsibility to hold down a job and provide for the family and the women were the primary carers. Well, that's changed dramatically. But I think that in some instances, women still do leave the finances to their male partner. But now that women make up a majority of the workforce and uh, they are earning a living, they are gaining superannuation, they need to make financial decisions, they all need to take a greater interest in finance and make sure that they're educated in that area. So even if you are in joint accounts and your husband handles all the finances or your partner or um, your significant other handles your finances, you really should understand yourself where your money's going and what you're doing with it. Uh, There are lots of apps, lots of services, lots of providers that help uh, support financial literacy. Even the big banks have financial literacy courses specifically dedicated and focused on uh, women's education in that field, and I think it's very important. More and more, we're seeing mainstream investing firms include a gender investing lens in their approach, you know, taking into account gender equality on boards and in leadership positions. We've got a system currently where you know, equality is starting to look pretty good at middle management level, yeah. but we still aren't really seeing that flow through yet to, you know, the CEO, COO, CFO levels. How can we help to get more women from middle management into these leadership positions? I know that the federal government's um, workplace gender equity advisory agency looks at this issue very closely. They take surveys of the uh, largest companies in the private private sector and the public sector across Australia and analyse the progression of women and the progression of the companies towards gender equity and at the lower levels and middle management levels, you're seeing women take on significant roles uh, in significant numbers. But when you get to the C-suite and you get to the executive level, uh, the numbers fall away dramatically. Much of that has to do with the biological fact that women do take time out of the workforce to raise a family, often are the primary carer, 
at both ends for the children and for the parents. And so that that um, balancing work responsibilities and family obligations has always been a challenge for women. It often does come down to educating um, men who are responsible for presiding over promotions to remind them that, or educate them generally, that women can bring a different leadership style and that needs to be recognised. Women do have a very, generally speaking, have a very different leadership style and sometimes people need reminding that the most assertive person in the room doesn't necessarily make the best team leader. Um, I think that, as we spoke about earlier, diversity of perspectives, experience and opinions is a strength to any organisation. And let's face it, it uh, is good for the bottom line as well. Yeah, well, I think you've you've touched on it, but you know, a lot of businesses out there, their purpose is to sell products and services, really. And if you're selling products and services and half the population you're selling to are women, then why wouldn't you have their perspective in the management level? How are you going to understand what they need? Well, in fact, I've come across a number of companies where they are essentially focused on selling goods and services to women, yet the board is made up mostly of men. And I've always found that fascinating. Why on earth wouldn't you ask women what women want? Seems self-evident. Exactly. In many male-dominated industries, such as politics and finance, firms are advertising roles and receiving far more applications from men than women. So how do we actually attract women into these industries in the first place? Well, it depends very much on the nature of the industries and whether significant numbers of women are interested in that work. I addressed a a conference the other day, Women in Quarrying, and they make up about 10% of the quarrying uh, workforce. Uh, But in a number of instances, it's because women don't appreciate the different roles and jobs and positions that are available in some of these male-dominated industries. I spoke about being at Mineral Resources Lithium Mine for the ovarian cancer photo shoot. And I spoke to about 20 women who uh, were on the site and I asked them what jobs they'd come from. And many of them came out of retail, out of um, beauty salons, across a whole range of different sectors of the economy and they said that they hadn't actually appreciated what jobs were available for women. Uh, They didn't realise that there were processing jobs, um, truck riding jobs, um, as well as administrative and the like. So I think it's about uh, the industries themselves promoting the opportunities for women, individual companies promoting the diversity of uh, positions that are available and women educating themselves as to what career paths are actually open to them. And there are very few that aren't open to women these days, even though they're not always in um, significant numbers. Um, you know, As I said, the flip side, of course, is uh, whether more men should be encouraged into female-dominated industries as much as women are, should be encouraged into male-dominated industries. Again, it's that diversity that I think adds to the richness of the, of the uh, workforce, the dialogue and the outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I was chatting to a friend the other day about some of the things that I've been doing at work and I work in finance. And she said to me, if I ever realize that, you know, you get to work with cool companies like that and get to interact with those kind of people, she's like, you know, I would have been so much more interested in that industry, but I just had no idea. Well, that's right. And it's the same as politics and people have a particular perspective on politics and some of that's most unfortunate. But I would encourage anyone who has a passion for a particular topic to 
pursue a, a career in it. Uh, I've learned in my many years in professional careers, I've learned that you've got to be passionate about what you're doing. I mean, if you're not really interested and excited about it, perhaps you're in the wrong place, in the wrong job, think about something else. I'm not suggesting you should go job hopping all the time, but you really have to have something in your life that makes you want to get up in the morning and get into work and, and do what you have to do because you're excited and exhilarated by it. And I've found that that's the best way to get job satisfaction, be really excited about the work you're doing. It's very sound advice. I know that Maddie and I are very excited by doing this podcast every day um, because we know we're trying to help people, you know, get all the society one step closer to closing that investing gap or that investing knowledge gap that we do definitely see um, amongst our friendship group and peers. But touching on that investing gap, you know, one of the statistics that really inspired us to start this podcast is that females just make up 18% of online active investors in Australia. And we really do believe that investing uh, does allow you to reach financial independence and freedom. From your experience or your wisdom, you know, how do you think we can close something like the investing gap? Well, I think, again, education is the key to building confidence uh, as people should only invest in, in products and stocks and so on that they understand. So to get a thorough understanding of the potential risks and rewards would support higher levels of engagement by women. So the more women that there are in the financial sector, the more likely they are to have podcasts like this one, the more likely they are word of mouth to tell others that, uh, yeah, get involved in investing and you can have some amazing experiences as well as gain that financial independence and freedom that so many women absolutely yearn for or aim for. Yeah, it's actually one of those things. It's so funny. We always hear people say all the time when they haven't invested before, they're like, that's too scary. I'm not going anywhere near that. And then once they start, they're like, oh, this is fun. There's a community of people I can talk to. I'm learning so much. Like it's just that little step, you know, over to the other side, but then also having that community of people around you to guide you and help you with it. And there are also professional firms, investment advisory firms that can help you along the way. And you don't have to be a multi-millionaire to find the right firm for you or a friend to help you along the way. But once once you've built that confidence, that understanding of what you're doing, I think people would uh, really enjoy it. Julie, we have a couple of final questions to finish off today. In your post-political career, you are a highly successful businesswoman and as a member of the International Advisory Board of Human Vaccines Project and American multinational software company Affinity, where do you see the biggest investment opportunities as we transition into the post-COVID world? Mm, well, first of all, any potential investors should seek professional advice <laughs> or undertake their own research as I am not an investment <laughs> advisor. Uh, so buyer beware. But I think there were a number of mega trends underway before the globe was hit with this pandemic and that included what we call the fourth industrial revolution. The uh, technology revolution is continuing to disrupt the way we live and work and engage and hasn't COVID shown us the power of technologies who are now so adept at using Zoom or Google or Teams or whatever else we're on. Um, and, and technology, according to the experts, is at its early stages. Uh, we're told that the biggest disruptions are yet to come, whether it's in AI or robotics and quantum computing and the like. 
So I think that um, areas of interest could be the emerging technologies in quantum computing and artificial intelligence and robotics and so on. But of course, I'm from Western Australia, so I should be encouraging people to continue to invest in uh, uh, mining companies who are very much focused on renewable, carbon-free mining. So I think some of the mining companies are still getting pretty amazing returns. Well, if you add in that little renewable thing there, I'm sure a lot of listeners would love hearing that because that's that's one of the biggest trends we're seeing for sure. Well, in in terms of uh, green hydrogen, uh, there are companies who are now seeking to transition from fossil fuel-based energy generation to uh, renewables or hydrogen. And I think that companies understand that savvy investors are looking for that sustainability, uh, that environmentally um, appropriate corporate activity. So ESG is is a real motivator for a lot of investors and that flows on to consumers and then, of course, the businesses. Yeah, 100%. We've definitely been seeing it ourselves. And our final question for you, Julie, if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? Don't let other people define who you are or what you can achieve. Set your own standards, your own benchmarks, and work hard to achieve them. Plenty of people will set benchmarks or standards for you that they couldn't or wouldn't meet themselves. That's some sage advice. Well, Julie, thank you so much for joining us on Your Own Good Company today. It has been an absolute honour to have you on and we have really enjoyed it. I wish you all the very best. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Julie. What an incredible way to end season two of your In Good Company. But don't worry, we're not going anywhere if you still want to be listening to us over your Christmas break because we have our summer series launching next week. Over six short and sharp episodes, we are going to be giving you six of the best investing tips that every millennial should know when starting investing. As always, if you have been enjoying this content, please share it, write us a review, join all of our social media platforms because we love having you there. You can find us on Instagram at YIGC Podcast, on Facebook in our YIGC Investing Podcast discussion group, and on TikTok at YIGC Podcast. You'll be catching our vacation selves from next week. <laughs> See you then. <laughs> Bye. You're in good company is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of You're In Good Company are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Your In Good Company acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people together. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.